This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 15. Jeremiah 7, we're looking this evening at uh, verses 1 through 15. The times referred to as the temple sermon as it was uh, delivered there uh, at the, the gate, at the entrance to the temple. Jeremiah 7, 1 through 15, hear the word of God. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight, as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. Pray. Our Lord, this is your word, man. It comes to us with full divine authority. And Father, just as Jeremiah spoke these words so long ago, and they are recorded for us now in Scripture, they speak to us. And we pray, Father, that they would indeed search our hearts and our lives and teach us and uh, convict us and draw us closer to you. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. In the United States, we live in a place uh, and we live in a time when it is easy to call yourself a Christian. 
One reason has to do with the freedom, religious freedom, that is guaranteed to us under our Constitution, uh, that we are free from persecution, that we have the legal right to uh, follow Christ, to gather publicly to worship Him. And so there's not the pressure or the threat, the fear of persecution that uh, believers in other countries might face or those who are about to become baptized followers of Christ might anticipate that they would bring on themselves. So it's easy for that reason. Another reason that it's easy for people in the U.S. to call themselves a Christian is that that term, Christian, has become so elastic so as to encompass people, it seems, who believe just about anything and live in just about any way and yet take for themselves the name Christian seemingly without sensing the irony or the incongruity of it at the end of the day, say, well, sure, I'm a Christian. Because it seems that all too often in our culture, being a Christian doesn't have anything to do with belief in a a particular Savior, the Lord Jesus, or with holding to particular foundational doctrines, or with even living in a certain kind of way. But it has more to do, it seems, sometimes with just being nice. Being a Christian means that you should live with this banal, insipid, saccharine niceness to other people. We see in our day where much sin is promoted, even by those who name the name of Christ. Think of the liberal mainline churches, at least segments of them. Uh, Much error is taught in the name of Christ. It's contrary to biblical teaching. And yet, at the end of the day, we're all Christians. We're not Jewish. We're not Muslim. We must be Christians. Well, there was something of that same ethos in Jeremiah's own day. Judah had not so much consciously rejected the Lord and his word and his covenant as they had begun to incorporate all kinds of other beliefs and all kinds of other teaching alongside of it, mixing it together. And, of course, the covenant is exclusive. God will not allow them to have any other God before him. It's either be in relationship with the Lord and no one else, or you have no part in the Lord. But that's what they were trying to do, adopting from the ways of the nations around them, following the lead of their kings, uh, particularly Manasseh, who was for many, many years the king of Judah and was himself a wicked and vile and profane and uh, horrendous, uh, not only person, but leader, uh, presided over a great deal of corruption in Judah. And uh, eventually, uh, his, I believe, grandson Josiah comes to the throne and brings about all kinds of reforms that were good, and yet in many ways only skim the surface. You can, you can change the outward contours by uh, royal fiat, but you cannot change people's hearts. And the people's hearts had not been changed. Uh, Manasseh had done his work. Uh, the people's hearts were very much in other places other than following the Lord. Well, as we look at this passage, Jeremiah spells out the hypocrite's peril in that day and in ours. Those who would want to name the Lord as their God and yet live any way 
they choose. There's several truths that Jeremiah brings out here in this passage. First of all, and perhaps the overriding truth, is that trust in hypocritical religion is misplaced. Trust in hypocritical religion is misplaced. We could say it's unfounded. We see this in verses 1 through 4 and again in verses 8 through 11, where Jeremiah and the Lord, speaking through Jeremiah, takes the people to task for this superstitious, hypocritical relationship to the temple, relationship to the Lord through the temple. Notice what uh, verse 4 says, Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. The first thing we want to notice here is that this is probably not a conscious hypocrisy. Many of these people probably see nothing at all amiss here in their religion and what they profess on the one hand and the way they live and even the way that they view the temple and therefore the way that they view God on the other. It's rather that they, for most of them anyway, have lived for so long on the basis of outward appearance that they've lost any sense of what the inward reality should be or even look like. They were so impressed maybe with the success of Josiah's reforms that they thought everything was okay. They thought that was all there was to it. And unfortunately, the same is true in our own day. People who have so grown accustomed to living this dual life of their religion on Sunday and living like the rest of the world Monday through Saturday, that it's not a conscious thing. It doesn't even strike them as, as, as in conflict. They're so accustomed to it. And simply to appear in church on Sunday, they consider themselves a religious and good person. God must be pleased with them, even if they live in sinful ways the rest of the week. It was perhaps unconscious, but it was nevertheless real hypocrisy. And two special manifestations of it. One is that superstitious view of God and his temple. Verse 4, we read, they just, Jeremiah almost mocks them. The Lord is mocking them. This is, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Therefore, everything's going to be okay, because this is the temple of the Lord. And you see it again in, uh, in, in their tendency uh, to have that same confidence in it in verses 8 through following. There's this superstitious trust that because the temple is there, because they participate in its rituals, everything must be okay. One of my favorite movies is Singing in the Rain. Probably all of you have seen it. If you haven't, you need to watch it. Fantastic movie, musical uh, but it's about the transition from the days of the silent films to the days of the talkies, talking movies. And there were a lot of great silent movie actors that, that never weathered the transition. Uh, they didn't have the voice for it. It required a very different type of acting. And uh, Gene Kelly, who plays Don Lockwood, this famous silent movie star, and Lena Lamont, uh, his partner in the silent movies, uh, we're making another silent movie, The Dueling Cavalier. It was a lot like all his other movies, but that was beside the point. Well, another studio comes out with a talking movie, a novelty, a fad, it'll pass. Well, it didn't. It was succeeding. It was doing very well. And they were stuck with this silent movie in production, and they had to come up with something to make it a talking movie. Well, they start adjusting it, start working in speaking parts into what was going had been a silent movie, 
and two actors who were accustomed to the exaggerated gestures and facial expressions of the silent movies now had to communicate through the word and not just through expression. Well, there's a scene where Don Lockwood, the actor, played by Gene Kelly, is, is in, the, in this courtyard with Lena Lamont. And they're wired for sound with all the technical difficulties that entailed. And he takes her hand. And this, there's a screen audience, a screening audience, uh, watching this initial release of the movie, preliminary release. And he takes her hand and he kisses up her arm and he says, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. And the audience is just laughing hysterically. Because that's what he was saying in the silent movies, but nobody could hear it. But now that they could hear, it sounded ridiculous. It sounded comedic. It was funny. People were laughing. It was totally the opposite effect. This passionate love scene turned out to be a joke. It was comedy. Why? Because we don't talk that way in real life. In real life, if some man was saying that to a woman to express his love, she would be laughing. Well, that's exactly the reaction the Lord gets when the people are saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Just because the temple was there, they were confident they were okay. God was laughing, even while he was not at all amused. This superstitious trust. And we see that today. I'm born again. I'm born again. I'm born again. I'm baptized. I'm baptized. I'm baptized. I'm reformed. I'm reformed. I'm reformed. What are you trusting in? I went to church Sunday. I go to church. I taught Sunday school or whatever it was. These these things that we put our trust in just as they trusted in the temple. I like the way one person put it. He said, standing in church singing a hymn doesn't make us holy any more than standing in a barn neighing makes us a horse. You see, there are too many people, even in our own day, who have a misplaced confidence. Their trust is in the religious trappings, the outward signs, without a living and vital relationship to the God who is behind those things. But it manifests itself not just in this superstitious trust, it manifests itself also in this pattern of going from sin to worship to sin. Sin to worship and again to sin. Look at verse 9. The Lord says, and notice how this just echoes the Ten Commandments. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, go after other gods you have not known? And then apparently with no sense of shame, with no sense of conflict, verse 10, then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations. Religion without change. The safety of religion with the pleasures of your sin. They commit all these sins, break all these commandments. They come in, they have confidence that they're religious people, only to go out and sin some more. These are the people who live in their sin during the week. They do go to church, and yet they go out unchanged and go back to their sin through the week. And notice the Lord's response to this. Verse uh, 11, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? 
Remember, Jesus quotes this verse, refers to this verse when he's cleaning the money changers out of the temple. The point is the den of robbers is the place of safety. They go out, they pilfer, they rob, they steal, but they return to their den. They say, we're safe. We've been delivered only to leave their den and go out and rob some more. Instead of it being a place of transformation, a place of meeting with God, a place of being changed forever, it just becomes a place that gives them a sense of psychological safety. They come in sinful, they go out to sin some more. You see, there's this pattern, sin, worship, sin. Now, certainly showing up, worshiping the Lord in all sincerity doesn't mean you go out a sinless man or woman. But your heart should be changed. There should be, on the one hand, repentance of sin committed the past week and preparation to face the coming week with a desire to be obedient to Christ, to live for him, to obey his word. At least that's the sincere and earnest purpose of your heart, not just to come in as though somehow we've made our peace with God only to go out and sin some more. Well, God makes plain the outcome of this religious hypocrisy that manifests itself by superstition on the one hand and and persistent flagrant sin on the other. Look at verses 12 through 15. God makes plain the outcome of religious hypocrisy. We've seen that it's misplaced. Now God explains what he thinks of it and what will become of it. And he basically uses an object lesson, uh, and that is Shiloh. Look at verse 12. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. Shiloh was the original worship place. Before there was a Jerusalem, there was Shiloh. When Joshua led Israel into the promised land, and they first started coming together to offer sacrifices, to worship the Lord, it was at Shiloh. And you'll recall it was at Shiloh, 1 Samuel uh, chapters 1 through 4, uh, where uh, uh, Hannah went, uh, where Samuel served with Eli. You know, the Lord calls to Samuel and he thinks it's Eli, and Eli finally says it's the Lord. He's calling you. Uh, but even then, as, as beautiful as that was with Samuel, there was corruption. Eli's sons uh, were wicked men who were doing perverse things in and through the the temple there and the worship of God there at Shiloh. And uh, speaking of superstition, the uh, Israelites in their war against the Philistines put the Ark of the Covenant out with the army, confident that taking the Ark with them will enable them to defeat the Philistines. Well, they lost. The Ark was captured. Uh, Shiloh eventually was destroyed by the Philistines, later again by the Assyrians. And so if they were to take up the Lord At his invitation in verse 12, go now to my place that was in Shiloh, what they would see was rubble. What they would see was nothing. And what's his point? His point is, verse 13, now because you've done all these things, declares the Lord, when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. I will do to the house that is now called by my name, in which you trust, the place I gave you and your fathers, as I did to Shiloh, and I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen of the offspring of Ephraim. You see, in Jeremiah's day, there wasn't anything to see there, and that was the point. That had once been the center of worship of the Lord in Israel, and it's nothing now. And so why are they so confident that they're safe 
and their superstitious trust in the temple. As God says, what I did to Shiloh, I can do to Jerusalem. And in fact, Psalm 78 comments on the demise of Shiloh. It says, For they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard, he was full of wrath, and he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. And that was exactly what was coming to Jerusalem and for the same reasons. You see, God doesn't take pleasure in hypocritical religion. He judges it. Think of Isaiah, uh, back in chapter 1 of Isaiah, other examples of this kind of thing. Um, Isaiah 1, verse 12, he says to Israel, when you come to appear before me, who's required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon, Sabbath, calling of convocations, I cannot endure. Iniquity, solemn assembly. He goes on to say, they have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. Well, God himself had instituted them. But the people were doing it in a meaningless, superstitious way. And God was sick of it. He hated it. Think of the New Testament. Jesus' encounter with the Pharisees, his rebukes, his woes on them in Matthew chapter 23. And after that long series where Jesus pronounces woe upon woe on the Pharisees, we read in verse 34, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, Therefore I send you prophets, or rather, uh, verse 33, he says, You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some of you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Ananias and Sapphira and their hypocrisy are struck dead. See, God isn't pleased. Hypocritical religion doesn't save. God doesn't just want the mere outward formal uh, rituals of religion. He can't be fooled. He can't be bought off. He wants your heart. He wants all of you. He won't accept anything less. Israel could not pursue her own sins and then turn around and try to buy God off with this empty religion. Well, finally then, our only hope is in true heart religion, and that is to say ultimately in God himself. Look at verse 3. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. And then again in verse 5, if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you don't oppress the sojourner, fatherless widow, shed innocent blood, if you don't go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land I gave of old to your fathers forever. That was the covenant. If you'll be faithful to the Lord, walk in his ways, he will bless you, he will keep you in the land, but if you turn from him, he'll curse you, he will bring all these afflictions upon you and eventually remove you from the land. That was the deal. Read Deuteronomy. That was it. And that's what he says here. He says, if you will only amend your ways. Now, he's not just saying improve your behavior. In some ways, they were doing that. 
least coming to the temple. But he was saying, if you will change, if you will be faithful to me, if, if you will love me and serve me and follow me from the heart, if your religion has reality behind it, then you can stay here and I will be present with you. And I will bless you. That's what the Lord is looking for. Repentance that expresses itself in real change. And the promises to enjoy the place of the Lord and the presence of the Lord. Well, it's the same thing with us today in the gospel. The new covenant message of God's grace. He's looking for genuine, heartfelt repentance that issues in real change of life as we trust in him and live by his power. And the promise is as we do that, we will dwell in his place, ultimately with him in heaven, in the new heavens and new earth, and we will dwell in his presence through Christ. How do you suppose the people responded to Jeremiah? Well, we don't have to guess. Jeremiah chapter 26, if you want to turn over there, tells us the response of the people. Uh, Jeremiah 26, 1 through 6, essentially uh, repeats what we've read in chapter 7 uh, in a little shorter form, the description of the temple sermon and Jeremiah's appeal. The Lord charged him to speak to Israel As they're coming in, all these words, and if they don't obey, I will make this house like Shiloh. Make it a curse for all the nations of the earth. Well, look at Jeremiah 26, verse 7. The priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. And when Jeremiah had finished all the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, and the priests and the prophets and all the people laid hold of him, saying, You shall die. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying this house shall be like Shiloh, and this city shall be desolate without inhabitant? And the people gathered around Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. And then again, verse 11. Then the priests and the prophets said to the officials and to all the people, This man deserves the sentence of death, because he has prophesied against this city, as you have heard with your own ears. The problem is hypocritical religion is proud Proud religion. Doesn't like to be told it's wrong. Doesn't die easily. But die it must, at least in the heart of anyone who wants to be right with God, anyone who wants to be saved. You see, our confidence is ultimately must be in Christ alone. The confidence in Christ that expresses itself by his power in heartfelt, real obedience. Let's pray. Lord God, we sincerely desire to be your people, to live in ways that are pleasing to you. Father, first of all, when someone confronts us over sin in our lives, even as we spoke about that this morning, we pray that we would not attack the messenger, but we would respond to the truth of what is said. But Father, we also pray that we would not be like the people of Jeremiah's day, your people, covenant people or that we would be like so many who name the name of Christ today and have no regard for personal holiness, no regard for genuine repentance, no real desire to live in obedience to Christ, even when that may be difficult or costly. But, Father, we pray that you would change our hearts, that we would have hearts for you, that our worship would be from the heart, spirit and truth, and that our lives during the week with other people, with non-Christians, even when we are absolutely by ourselves, would be lived in careful obedience to you, to your word. Not because we're trying to impress or fool anyone, but because we love you, O God, 
our rock and our redeemer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.